0: What makes a voice a beautiful voice? Well, what a way to open a can of worms, right? You could tell me that for every listener there's a different opinion, and you'd be right. Maybe it's best not to try and proclaim what makes a voice objectively beautiful, but to talk about how and why people have considered certain voices or vocal styles beautiful across the ages. And to keep things simpler... Perhaps I'll focus mostly on Western art music, but I'll try and draw a few important ideas along the way from other music traditions as well. Plus, I'll touch on the way in which we consume music today and how that affects what we find beautiful. It's all on The Human Voice, Part 2, with me, Vlad Smyskevich. phrase, the familiar expression, is in the ear of the behearer. But if it were as simple as that, we wouldn't have such strong opinions and debates about who and what we like when it comes to singers and singing. Some listeners might think that the version of Purcell's setting of Shakespeare's text, Music for a While, sung by Susanna Wallumrod, might qualify as beautiful, while others might object to the vocal style or timbre, the setting, or other details. When it comes to vocal preferences, if it were as simple as to each their own, then we most definitely would not have a thriving world of broadcast and social media that hooks listeners in with sounds and sound bites that depend on what some segments of the population find interesting or engaging. Sometimes what captures people's attention doesn't necessarily fall under the label of beautiful. It could be humorous, even irresistibly annoying, but definitely attention-grabbing. And then, of course, we have divisions among ourselves as a human family about what we consider pleasant or beautiful, even within lovers of a same style. So how do we make sense of all of this? Let's take this a step at a time and talk about what's behind the idea of beauty. But maybe we aren't using the right word here or even asking the right question. What does beauty want? What actually do we want? Since you so much desire to know the place of Cupid's fire, about you somewhere doth it rest yet never harbored in the breast. The lute song Beauty If You So Much Desire by Thomas Campion, a balance of words and melody with the polyphonic lines heard in the instrumental part, sung by tenor Frederick Uri and with Ron MacFarlane on lute, it was an expression of vocalism that came from the late Renaissance and early Baroque, from the start of the 1600s. It was a time that held poetry and verse in high esteem, and listeners thought it was important to hear words clearly, but they also enjoyed a good melody as well as thoughtful polyphonic textures. Campion, along with other contemporaries such as Dowland, Rossiter, Holborn, and Morley, were champions of the lute song, which elevated sung poetry to a form accessible by all but still based in melodic expression. Words, melody, good accompaniment, these were lute songs' priorities. Around the same time over in Italy, composer Claudio Monteverdi was writing music for chapel and stage, sacred and secular, and while he was no stranger to good polyphony, he was definitely interested in the words-taking center stage, and they would do so thanks to excellent support from his deft harmonic and melodic writing. Always, though, the music was the handmaiden of the words, and Monteverdi said as much in his 1605 response to the conservative music theorist Giovanni Artusi. Once more, the words were top priority, but Monteverdi and his contemporaries added yet another dimension to the vocal expression, spotlighting the text in a novel way, ornamentation. ORNAMENTATION <laughs> From Monteverdi's seventh book of madrigals, that was Tempo la Cetra, performed by the Consort of Music, directed by Anthony Rulli. We can hear from works like this the importance of words and the use of vocal ornamentation, two priorities of the Italian late Renaissance. So it sounds like we're getting on to something here. Each period and each region seems to have its musical priorities those things that stand out in the repertoire, the style and the performance of music from the time and place. What other priorities did other time periods and locales have? Well, let's continue our whirlwind tour of Western vocal music and see if it gets us any closer to cracking this riddle of vocal beauty. (laughs) ¶¶¶¶¶¶ the start of the 18th century, singers were now being sought out for their ability to not only declaim texts clearly, but also for their melismatic prowess. In other words, they could sing quick and florid passages in the midst of arias, just as we heard Filip Jaruski and Cecilia Bartoli doing together a moment ago in the duet La Gioia Chio Sento from Nicola Porpora's opera Mitridate. Alternating longer-held phrases to bring out the counterpoint against quickly running ornamented lines required two types of control in singing. Excellent tuning and a smooth but shimmering voice, and one that was light and not plodding, and able to take those quick turns around the fioritura, or melismas. One of the best-known singers of this period was Carlo Broschi, known by a stage name, Farinelli, and himself a student of Nicola Porpora. This castrato singer came to be known as one of the most admired of his time and he was renowned throughout Europe for his ability to perform runs, trills, and all manner of virtuosic passages. Plus, he was also able to elicit great vocal power in performance, which let him fill the opera houses and music halls of the time. These vocal skills were important in the music of another pretty well-known composer from the 18th century. From Act II of Mozart's Clemenza di Tito, the character of Vitellia, here sung by Fatma Said, winner of the 2016 Veronica Dunn International Singing Competition. Vitellia begins this recitative section clearly declaiming the words that preoccupy her mind. Will she be strong enough to admit her plans of conspiracy against Tito, the emperor, in order to save the life of her beloved Sesto, even if it costs her any possibility of ascending the throne? Pretty important thoughts, so we want to hear those words clearly. Mozart takes care of that. But then, when Vitellia's emotional state changes from preoccupation to resolve, we hear it poured out in melodic strains with the addition of some mellifluous ornamentation. The aria Non Più di Fiori, from the second act of Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito. Vitellia's role sung there by Fatma Said. The endings of each of those sections really brought out emotion in a different way than did Monteverdi or Dowland, who relied on the power of text and how the music would serve it. With Mozart, the intensity of emotion is more on a par with intensity of dynamics or volume combining the ability to sing words clearly in recitative and then switch gears into contrasting high-volume dramatic sections, as well as the ability to take agile turns around melismatic passages, these were all important priorities for singers in the late 18th century. And as the spaces and orchestras got larger and larger throughout the 19th century, vocal techniques adapted to the styles so singers could continue working. But something had to give, and public tastes and composer styles were also changing, and more music in the West was heading towards larger productions and performing forces. By the time we get to the mid-1800s, there are massive sounds coming out of opera houses thanks to the likes of Wagner, with large orchestral forces underpinning heroic voices. By the time we get to the mid-1800s, there are massive sounds coming out of opera houses thanks to the likes of Wagner, with large orchestral forces underpinning heroic voices. But we still get to hear smaller-scale works that require vocal finesse, agility, and nuanced musicality. For example, the leader of Schubert, Schumann, Strauss, and Wolf, and into the early 20th century, the modern French chanson of Forêt, Debussy, or Duparc. the soprano Stéphanie Doustrac with Pascal Jourdan at the piano performing Henri Duparc's L'Invitation au Voyage. The poetry of Charles Baudelaire married to music, but with a melody that's designed to display those long arcs of phrase that a trained voice would elegantly perform. Which is the priority here? Is it the music or the poetry? It seems we're not concerned with overt ornamentation in this period either, so what remains to be shown off? The beauty of the words the presence of the voice which expresses them. Although this brief tour of musical styles doesn't seem to have left us with concrete answers, one thing becomes apparent. There's not only a mixture of priorities at play during each period in Western musical history, but there also seems to be an historical pendulum swinging between simplicity and complexity. Sometimes, tastes favor a simple delivery of texts. At other times, composers are ready to oblige audiences with copious florid passages. Or the text might be straightforward, accessible, and uncomplicated. One could even argue, sometimes bordering on the banal. But the vocal fireworks that deliver that text are the real showstoppers. And then, trying to have one's cake and eat it too. Sometimes the poetry of national bards like Shakespeare, Goethe, Cervantes, or Tasso is combined with exquisite harmonies and excellent melodic writing. It seems that the only constant is change. So what about the voices themselves? If the way we use voices for singing changes all the time, how can there be any one beautiful voice? I'd like to invite us to think about enculturation, the idea that we develop frameworks to understand the music we hear through the shaping influences of our environment. Science seems to agree with this idea. Recent research into human music cognition suggests that enculturation affects one's understanding of music structure before adulthood, but can also be affected later in life, by exposure or training. Also, it seems we can be encultured in more than one setting. If, for example, we're raised within a Western European musical setting, but also regularly exposed to, say, Senegalese music, for example, we could become musically bicultural. And if we further expose ourselves through training or passive listening to Indian classical music, we might become musically multicultural. So, back now to Beautiful Voices. How do we judge the beauty of a voice? I propose that it really is in the ear of the beholder, or the behearer, if you will. But why? Because we are encultured to find it beautiful, is my thinking. We've been training ourselves passively or actively by studying or listening to musical styles that might have been handed down by parents, teachers, friends, colleagues, and in this day and age, influencers, social media, streaming player algorithms... But tastes can change, and they do. In this short interval, we've only just scratched the surface of this fascinating topic. And in our interconnected, multicultural world, we might never be able to agree on what makes a beautiful voice beautiful, but it sure does matter what common experiences we share when we decide to judge voices as beautiful. And since we've come together because of our shared experience of listening to classical Western singing, but we also have the benefit of being exposed to many other styles of music here on RTE Lyric FM, I'll leave you with something that I think you'll find brings together what's perhaps both familiar and new for many of us. Bringing back Fatma Said, 2016 winner of the Veronica Dunn International Singing Competition, this is an expression of what at least I would judge to be a real bel canto, Beautiful singing, the song Sahar el Layali by Lebanese composer Elias Rahbani. <laughs> Looking forward to the next time we can spend together exploring the human voice. I'm Vlad Smishkevich, and this is RTE Lyric FM.